It's the criterion. It's the criterion. 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 In. 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 Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Project. This is the podcast where we talk about movies in the Criterion Channel and their collection. And I just realized this is not my time to host, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I don't mind. <laughs> this is supposed to be Rachel's week, and all of a sudden, I just went for it. Um, sorry about that, Rachel. Why don't you take over from there? Okay. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Criterion Project. I'm film critic Rachel Wagner, and Conrado is here. Yes, he is. Yes, and I uh, hope you're doing well. Having a good February. Mm-hmm. A winter winter morning appropriate for this chilly, chilly movie. Yes, I think that'll be good. Uh, today, we are talking about a, a film from the great... Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Today, we are talking about Winter Light, and mm-hmm. uh, this is going to be a very interesting film to talk about. It's, of course, it's by the great director Igmar Bergman. And it's yes. one that we've been wanting to cover uh, for a little while. That's and, right. Yeah. So it's it's going to be, this was only my second uh, Bergman film that I've seen. We have been talking about Igmar Bergman, like you said, for a while on this podcast. Mm-hmm. He's come up a couple of times and we've always been kind of like saying, OK, maybe next time we should finally do Igmar Bergman. And we were about to remember when uh, around the holidays with Fanny and Alexander, but then just like scheduling was not uh, doable yeah. for that movie because it's very long. So um, we weren't able to do that, but we thought that we would give it a shot now with a shorter movie. And um, so we'll see how that went. Um, but I'm certainly excited. I think there's a lot to yeah. talk about here. Um, I think so. Yeah. So what have you been watching recently, either on the Criterion channel or uh, anything else you'd like to recommend? Yeah. So after our conversation with Jose uh, last episode, when we talked about Imitation of Life, I really got this uh, the curiosity to watch uh, Far From Heaven again, which he mm. mentioned because it's a movie that is very clearly inspired by Douglas Sirk uh, and his movies. So this is from 2002, directed by Todd Haynes. And it's set in 1950s Connecticut. A housewife faces a marital crisis and mourning racial tensions in the outside world. So she, the housewife is played by Julianne Moore. She finds out that her husband, played by Dennis Quaid, is secretly gay. And um, so she's struggling with that. And at the same time, she strikes a friendship with her gardener played by Dennis Haysbert. So, um, you know, a black person. And that becomes also part of like a little bit of like the talk of the town or like what is going on with our friend who is like suddenly hanging out with a black person, which, you know, it's the fifties and we're not okay with this um, kind of a thing. Um, What's very interesting about the movie, I thought, which Jose brought up is that it is very clearly inspired by Douglas Sirk. It is almost like a remake or a pastiche of his movies. Um, it is, you know, the the costumes and the sets are all fantastic and, and beautiful, but also the lighting is tries to imitate the, the kind of lighting from Technicolor of the 50s. And the score is really, you know, bombastic and melodramatic, like those classic Hollywood scores. And the plot is very similar. 
I mean, obviously there's a racial element that was an imitation of life, but this movie, apparently the plot is really, really close to another Cirque movie called All That Heavens Allows, in which an older woman falls in love with a younger man. In this case, he shifted it to... Basically, I think what's going on here is that Todd Haynes loves Douglas Cirque, but also sees what we were talking about last time, that there's so many things that are below the surface, and he kind of brings them to the front, right? He's more upfront about what the racial dynamics of the 50s were. Um, he's more upfront about, you know, sexuality that is maybe coded in some of Cirque's movies, but here it becomes text. And I was watching it and having a good time, but I was I kept wondering, this feels like, you know, an interesting exercise about trying to replicate this thing, but is it really, you know, what is what is the real, like, how great can it be? Like, is the real purpose there? Like, what, what is there enough? And then, of course, the second half of the movie completely bowled me over because I think what he does really great is that Todd Haynes um, brings the same kind of sincerity and emotion that Douglas Sirk brought to his movies. And in the second half, when everything starts to get really uh, intense and, and dramatic, it all pays off in a really, really powerful emotional way. And I thought the movie was great. I had seen it once before, but it was great to to see it again and, and be reminded that, yes, it is a great movie. Mm. Yeah, I actually haven't seen this one. This is a, a blind spot uh, of mine. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do really like Todd Haynes uh, in his film. So I definitely need to watch that eventually. Yeah, definitely yeah. recommend. It could be part of your blind spot series since mm -hmm. you've said blind spot about it. Um, and I think it would make a great a great entry. Of course, Todd mm -hmm. Haynes was the subject of our first episode we ever yeah, did of Criterion true. Project. Safe. So if people want to go back to that's another great movie if people haven't mm -hmm. seen it. Mm -hmm. with julianne moore yeah yeah sure. cool uh well the one that i watched uh on criterion channel uh this uh in this last two weeks is i finally watched the uh, robert altman film the player mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed it i thought it was extremely well written and uh, i i thought it uh, had the satire while actually being funny and insightful and still even you know now 30 years later still having something to say i think about hollywood, hollywood and movies yeah. <laughs> and uh, this the whole system of how things get greenlit mm -hmm. and uh, uh i think still it, it, some of the stuff holds even more truth i think now than it did then some of it doesn't but I just, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. I also really love this movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but I but I really love it. I love Robert Altman in general. And, and The Player was one of the first movies that I saw of him. And it really, um, you know, they had the whole Hollywood satire angle, which I agree with you, it's done so well. But the ending of the movie is so, uh, you know, dark and but also funny and satiric in its own way and mm -hmm. ironic with everything that we've seen about the movie that it was one of those endings that as a young person watching movies really made me go like whoa you can do that in a movie you can like bend uh fiction and fact and kind of like end mm -hmm. in this like very um complicated but also really satisfying note at the same time i was really um i am a big fan of this movie so yeah. i also recommend it yeah, if if the listeners, if our listeners, if you enjoyed uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you enjoyed you know sort of movies like that, then I think you'll really like this one. 
Yeah, right. But this comes with a much more cynical eye towards anything that has to do with with Hollywood and movies, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing with uh, the the, uh, the death penalty movie that they're making, mm -hmm. it's really it's really funny. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I guess now we aren't as star driven as we were then as far as movies go. Yeah. Uh, we're more IP driven. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that would be the joke now that you've got. To yeah, make of it, course. Like, you've got to make Is it, it based the, on anything. Yeah. Can you put yeah, some you superheroes it, in here? <laughs> yeah, you got to make it like the Ghostbusters movie or something yeah. like that. I think that's would be the joke now. Ghostbusters tackle the death penalty. Yeah. That'd be great. We should we should pitch an actual remake of this. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So that was a, a very pleasant uh, watch. Uh, I just I liked it. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I um I I wasn't a big fan of Altman's Mash when I saw finally saw that hmm. I don't know I just I didn't think that one was funny uh no it hasn't aged very well I also saw it um somewhat recently I saw half of it and I turned it off because I was like oh yeah this is not doing much for me mm -hmm. yeah but I love Gosford Park so I guess uh he's um two for three of what I've seen so far yeah well he's made so many movies um and he yeah. was very prolific so um there's a lot to see there have you ever seen his Popeye movie no, I never have. I have also seen uh, Prairie Home Companion, so I guess that's oh, Prairie Home Companion, so good. Four. Um, but um, but I think Popeye would be great for one of your like family movie nights or something. Um, mm -hmm. that's a. It seems like a, yeah, it seems like it could be up your alley. It's a, it's a very interesting take on a children's movie. Yeah, I I've been wanting to see that uh, for sure. So there we go. Well, let's dive into Winter Light. Why don't you tell our listeners what this movie is about? All right. So Winter Light is um, the story of a man named Thomas, who is a, a priest um, or a pastor. reverend, a pastor. That's right. He's a pastor in a seems like a kind of rural community in Sweden. Um when the movie first starts, he is given mass um, in a pretty long section of the movie, like the first 15, 20 minutes, I think, or something like that mm -hmm. are just the, the service. And we see the people in the service are kind of like going through the motions. Um, nobody seems particularly touched by kind of like the word of God or, or the, you know, the, the whole the church experience. Um, and then we find out that Thomas himself has feels... Uh, kind of very distant from God and feels very um, doubtful about what's going on. He's he's actually pretty distressed about the situation. Some people might say he's depressed. He has lost meaning. Um, he doesn't know uh, if God exists even at this point, despite the fact that he's a pastor. And he's having kind of like a crisis of faith. That's the easiest way to put it. Um, and into this plays a couple of other characters. Um, there's a couple, a young couple who comes seeking advice because the 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 young husband has is also going through a crisis he's very depressed he's having suicidal thoughts because of impending nuclear war this is a movie from the 60s by the way so we should probably make that clear mm -hmm. and then there's also the character of Car Marta sorry Marta who's played by Ingrid Tulin and she is um um a school teacher in the in the town but also she wants She's kind of like the 
uh, kind of a lover, a partner of the of the pastor of Thomas, but um, but Thomas doesn't want to have anything to do with her. In fact, he is a widower. His wife died four years ago, and that seems to be the thing that kicked off this moment of crisis. And and Martha is trying to reach out to him, but he won't listen. And so the movie really takes place over three or four hours, maybe in in his life. Like you know, it's just it's a very compact moment in time in which he is going through this critical moment and he um interacts with these other people that kind of lead him to a what i would say is a somewhat ambiguous ending um but we can talk about that more in a second do you think that's mm-hmm. a fair assert- as assertion of what the movie's about yeah i think that you covered most of the the beats uh yeah it's uh, about this man who <clears throat> it's about this man who uh is uh going through like you said a crisis of faith and uh, he doesn't feel like God is listening mm-hmm. or cares about him or the people. And uh, so, yeah, he's a very cynical character, lead character for the story. Yeah, definitely. It's a very, I would say, cynical movie in general. And a very, mm-hmm. you know, the, the context in which the movie comes out, it's uh, after the Second World War, you know, um, the Cold War. And after so, you know, like so many things around that time, art, artists and, and filmmakers, you know, especially someone like Ingmar Bergman, who has, you know, his... Um, you know, what we would call maybe like pretentious tendencies. We'll talk about that later, of course, mm-hmm. in our pretentiousness scale. But um, he wants to talk about this, this like large subjects, right? And this movie, from what I see in my research, is part of a trilogy that people refer to as the Silence of God trilogy, right? So it's all about feeling like God is not there. You know, it's like um, kind of wrestling with the, with the, the overwhelming feeling that this system of belief and that the world is completely, um, you know, like there might not be a, a salvation for the world, that there might not be order in the world and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I'm curious what your reaction was, Rachel, because obviously you are a more religious person than I am. So your relationship with God is probably quite mm-hmm. different than mine and probably quite right. different than Bergman's. So um, what did you make of this movie? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a well-made film, uh, well-acted, well-shot but I didn't care for it as a story. Um, and it doesn't, I don't need something to be, you know, faith forward, mm-hmm. but I, I just felt like he was such a jerk. I didn't care about him. And I, I don't know. I just, I kind of left feeling like, what was the point? Why did we just spend, why did I just spend an hour and a half of my life with this terrible person? Uh, <laughs> I didn't really get kind of, what he was trying to say with it. So That's I'm curious to hear of, what you felt like he was yeah. trying to say. I feel like that what you're saying is, is certainly part of the cynicism of the movie, you know, taking a, a character who's a pastor, who's supposed to be someone who's connected with God and, um, you know, have certain qualities of compassion, understanding, um, and make him such an unlikable character, right? That seems very kind mm-hmm. of pointed in a way. There's this part that really stuck to me when he talks about his how he's lost his own belief in God. And I uh, I wish I had um, taken the quote, but there's a moment when he talks about how he, um, uh, oh, here it is. I have it from a, from a writing by film critic Robin Wood. So he wrote, um, uh, 
The point that emerges, which the priest himself is for to confront, is that Thomas's Christianity has almost nothing to do with Christ. He has believed in God, who, as he acknowledges to Jonas, loved all men but myself more than anyone else. The comforting private God his dead wife helped him to nourish, who instantly became a spider god, a monster, when confronted with reality. Thomas has to learn to accept the Christ who can be found, in one form or another, in the human beings who surround him, in the cruel and ugly physical reality from which he shrinks. A humanized Christ, not necessarily a god. I thought that was interesting. Robin Wood, this is from his book on Ingmar Bergman's movies, which I hadn't read, but I read this chapter for this episode. Um, mm -hmm. His reading is interesting in that he said, yeah, he thinks that. He thinks that what Bergman is doing here is making a critique of a, or a kind of belief that is separate from from humanity. You know, that there is that I think he's trying to, to position a kind that there can be a belief in God that it's all about yourself and that it's not connected to what actually is meaningful about um, God and religion in his opinion, obviously. Um, and he also positions Martha as, as a little bit of a, of a Christ figure because she, um, first of all, in a, in a very, well, Martha is such a great character in my opinion. It was my favorite character in the movie um, because she comes to the, priest and there's this great scene in which she reads a letter to him which is just like um Ingrid Tulin the actress facing the camera giving this monologue which is very very intense in which she kind of like pretty much reprimands him from the way he's treated her for so long but she reads it in a very calm way that was kind of very unsettling to me and in that monologue she tells him that she has found that he is very ambivalent towards Jesus Christ and that and that she thinks that's very curious and ambivalent towards Jesus Christ he's also very ambivalent towards her and their relationship he doesn't want to see her and eventually he outright um in a scene that I think is very harsh and probably his most unlikable moment he really um says some horrible things to her about like he doesn't care about her about her illnesses about her trivialities and he really kind of tells her off in a unwarranted way i would say um but she um has this rash or has had this rash that appears in her head in her hands and in her feet kind of like the stigmata from jesus so i think what robin wood is saying that he is presenting her as the as a, as a human connection just like jesus is the human incarnation of god kind of a way and that thomas is not able to see that not able to connect with humanity and that is his uh flaw is what i took from it now <clears throat> this is my best attempt at at getting an interpretation out of this movie which i agree with you when i when it was done even though i enjoyed it more than you because i could see that there was something going on there i just didn't know what and then i had to really think about what was going on um do you have any comments about any of this because i've been going on for a while yes no i i think you did a very good job he said he talks about how his his faith was an egotistical one that god mm -hmm. loved humanity but thomas most of all uh when he was yeah. a believer and uh that that was an interesting kind of concept um, but then he also kind of takes it a step further and uses it as his excuse for being unkind because mm -hmm. there is no uh, consequence eternally, at least for, for being unkind. And uh, it, it, he says that uh, if you can deny God, then man's cruelty needs no explanation. He says, 
yeah. which you know is is interesting. I thought about a a, a film uh, that is also about a character that is at least agnostic, if not atheist, mm-hmm. um, that I think is a lot better than this uh, is a movie called Things to Come. I don't know if you've seen that film. With Isabelle um, Huppert? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen that movie. That's a great movie. I love it so much. And uh, the it's about this woman whose life is just falling apart, kind of similar to this character. Uh, mm-hmm. She... Um, uh, her mother has passed away. She's uh, her her career is in shambles, and her husband is cheating on her. So everything mm-hmm. is going wrong. And uh, the there's a scene when she's uh, delivering the eulogy at uh, her mother's funeral, where she talks about basically that <clears throat> having hope and not not believing in God is, is one of the most like hopeful things that you could do still believing that there's a purpose and there's meaning in, mm-hmm. uh, in life. And, uh, it was such a beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most probably inspirational speeches I can think of from a movie. And it's from a character that's, that's atheist. That's, that doesn't believe. And mm-hmm. it was beautiful. And I, I just, uh, I don't know. I was just thinking about that and how uh, how close we feel to her character and how much we're rooting for her. And obviously there's two different movies, but I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like it kind of takes the same sort of issues and cynicism, but it's just yeah. more more for me, I guess. I don't know. I, see, I, I, I mean, I see what you're saying completely. And I think it's not a coincidence even in a kind of in a cultural, in a time sense, uh, because, you know, that movie that you're mentioning came out um, not so long ago, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. like 2015 or something like that. Yeah. And and obviously Winter Light is from the 60s. So I do think that there is something about the idea of confronting uh, the the idea that God might not exist or that there might, what does it mean that there's so much suffering if there is a God in this world in the 60s is much different from the 2010s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think back then, especially for someone like Ingmar Bergman, and this is some um, something that I learned about him um, so and his personal history, because his father was a uh, pastor, and a very, very religious and very um, strict kind of uh, pastor from, I'm not, I don't know exactly what kind of, um, you know, Christianity uh, or church he was leading, but he, but you can see it actually in Fanny and Alexander, there's a character based on his father that has very strict rules in his house and is very pious in many ways and, and very strict. And, and that seems to have been like the environment in which Berkman grew up. And then, of course, um, he grows up into the 20th century and he sees all this destruction and he starts to have a crisis of faith of himself. Um, I think he's putting a lot of himself, a lot of the dark parts of himself in this main character. Um, This is something that I learned from our friend of the show and past guest, Tim Brayton's review of it on his website, Alternate Ending where he says that, you know, the name of the character is Thomas, who is, you know, a doubting Thomas in this case. And his full name is Thomas Erickson, which Bergman's 
dad's name was Eric. So he's making like a very kind of winky thing here of saying like, yes, I am a doubting Thomas, son of Eric, who really doesn't know how to feel about these things and is very dejected about this whole faith situation. And there's even that moment when they're driving and the train passes by uh, and he turns to Marta and says like, you know, it was my parents who wanted me to become a, a priest. Um, and I think that's also Berkman saying like, my, my father is a very religious person and I don't feel connected to it anymore. And what do I make out of that? You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's a different kind of struggle. Um, and I think something that is just maybe not as relevant to us today as it might have been in the 60s, this idea of like, how do we feel about about this um, silence of God sort of thing? Um, yeah, he talks about that you can't reconcile war and a loving God. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is the the reality of evil that's always uh, a a hard thing for christianity to kind of wrap their Mm -hmm. their brain around and explain yeah um and uh, the he he even brings it up to the point where christ himself was abandoned by god so Mm -hmm. all everybody is at one point abandoned by god and I mean, I guess the Christian perspective would say that God can't control each of our choices. Mm-hmm. He has to give, but he can be there to comfort us in the consequences of people's choices. Mm. You know, people are still going to be allowed to do bad things because otherwise there's no... Uh, if everybody's just forced to do good things, then the good things have no real weight to them. They never mm. have no real value as right. opposed to when, when people have autonomy and freedom to choose. And, uh, mm. and so then God is there to help us mm. with the burden of people's choices. That's uh, very, yeah, that's very interesting. And would you say also that there is maybe an element of, of important for each person to learn to to become a good person mm-hmm. you know that that's also an important part of it that's what i'm getting a little bit out of what you're saying that yeah. that right that it's important not yeah to not be forced into being good but to do it out of your own volition and coming to that conclusion through i guess through god's love or or whatever it is mm-hmm. yeah and you recognize the humanity of the people the other people that you come in contact with that that's part of, of, a, you know, that's why people that are, are the people that are, you know, your psychopaths and your, your, mm-hmm. your people, they lose that humanity. And, mm. and they, and this pastor in this story, he pretty much has lost that he's lost his connection yeah. to the other. Um, and, and he, mm. if you were to have a, in a sequel, I guess, to this movie with him becoming a, a, uh, serial killer, or, you know, like, <laughs> it would not seem out of character to me. Mm, because yeah, because he has, that's very right. He has lost, well, he lost his wife. So he's lost his connection. That seems from what people say in the story to be the most meaningful connection in his life, maybe even more so than his connection with God. It, it really, I get the sense that he, 
was really holding on through his wife. And so she's gone. So she's, he's lost that connection. He's lost his connection to God. And he doesn't seem to be able to connect with anyone else around him. And he doesn't even want to, it seems, at some point, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, even when the one character has committed suicide, Jonas has committed suicide, mm-hmm. he, this pastor's just so cold. And he doesn't even feign any kind of kindness at all yeah he's a very distant person almost like he's removed from any feeling um Mm -hmm. yeah because he yeah because i think he's he sees himself or he's more connected to the you know to god the the spirit the god father version than the than the jesus uh son human element of god right Mm -hmm. um so he had kind of has removed himself from humanity in a kind of almost hubristic way um I wanted to talk about the ending of the movie if you feel like it's yeah. a good time to do so. Um, because one of my the scenes that I that lingered with me the most, you mentioned a little bit of it already, is when he goes, eventually they drive to another town that it's even smaller to give another service, like an afternoon service. And mm-hmm. um the the man who seems to be kind of in charge of this church um talks to the pastor because he's been wanting to talk to him for a while. And he asks him about the Jesus's passion, um, and he asks, and he says, like I've been reading it, the the passion, and it seems to me that Jesus must have uh, had a suffering beyond the physical, because the person who's talking seems to have some sort of physical ailment. So, mm-hmm. so we get the, the the sense that he has suffered a lot physically throughout his life, a lot of pain. So he says, because I have suffered a lot of pain. And even for longer, technically, than Jesus in my own way. And I feel like I've been able to bear it. So there must have been something else that was the what really, really hurt Jesus in that moment. And it's to have been abandoned by his um, followers, by his friends, and eventually by his father, by God himself in the cross. And it's that um, kind of... And that's what I got from it, right? That it was the loneliness and the and the and the being forsaken that that must have been the real pain, and obviously that is um, put into comparison to what's going on with Thomas himself. Um, you know, the movie takes mm-hmm. place over four hours, which is kind of like what he in this moment he says, like, you know, how much, how long did Jesus suffer for? Probably around four hours. Um, so they're making a connection there, and what I thought was interesting is then he goes out to give this sermon. There's nobody there. He gives. He decides to service anyway, and he comes out and he says, um, "Oh, I can't remember what he says, but he says, um, I'm gonna try to find the the exact quote." Um, but that's where the movie ends, and I and I and I was left there, and I didn't know what quite what to make of it. What did you make of the ending, Rachel? Well, yeah. So when they're talking about Jesus uh, with the sexton. Uh, I do think it is an interesting point that uh, that he was abandoned by God, and that was the worst punishment of all. That uh, he he was he needed to have. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that his mm-hmm. suffering paid for our sins which is what christians believe if you believe that then he had to experience all pain and all 
sin and sorrow. The, the, mm. the, 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 he had to have, he had to be able to have empathy for everything mm-hmm. that had ever happened, including the loss of God. Mm. And, uh, and so in that final passion, as they just talk about this, he mm. had to experience that in order to have perfect empathy. Um, mm. And so the idea I think is that, that we all as believers experience the abandonment by God hmm. uh, in our lives. And, and if we didn't experience it, then we, we wouldn't be strong believers hmm. it, that that's part of the experience of believing in spite of it all mm-hmm. um, that makes you strong. Um, and you know, there is something kind of, scary about that, I guess. And, uh, and I, so I think that's what maybe he's getting at a little bit and that, uh, that this character at least isn't strong enough to get through it and get through that abandonment. So Uh, what he's, he, he's lost it. So what do you make of the very end when he comes out and says, holy, 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 Lord God Mm -hmm. almighty, all the earth is full of thy glory. Mm -hmm. Do you think that he's just going through the motions there? Like he has lost it or, or, or does it feel like he's trying to reconnect? I felt like he was just going through the motions. Mm -hmm. I, I I didn't see any sign of any kind of like conversion or any kind of, I mean, he, he, has just been so mean to Marta. He's just been, I just didn't see any kind of uh, change of heart for this character. Mm-hmm. De- definitely. The movie does not make that explicit, right? I think it's mm-hmm. like a, a oblique ending on purpose. Like he just says that. And, and it's up to us to decide whether the words mean anything to him or not at that end. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I guess the, the, you know, beyond how we feel about the character, at least for me, the movie makes at least a good case of, by the end, I kind of know what he's missing or what he's lacking or the things mm-hmm. that prevent him, you know, what what is keeping him from, from uh, connecting with God again and connecting with other people and what's making him so miserable in a certain way. Um, yeah, it's interesting because he kind of takes the abandonment of God and the inhumanity of man as an excuse to be inhumane mm-hmm. and it, to, to be cold, to be, uh, as opposed to, uh, I don't know, like, like with this things to come in, in, is an example of, yeah. um, taking that and actually trying to become a better person mm-hmm. because you are going to, uh, believe despite having sort of the crutch of religion, not having, despite not having the crutch of religion, like making it even more, uh, uh, more a part of kind of an excuse to be a good person. If that makes yeah, sense. Definitely. Yeah. Well, a much more optimistic vision than this one. Um, what is interesting though, is that the director of that movie thinks to come is Mia Hansen love who made a movie called Bergman Island last year. So, um, 
which is you know related to Igmar Bergman. Yeah. So she might I, maybe she was inspired by some of his movies to write yeah. that speech. It would be interesting to talk to her. I I was thinking about that actually that. Uh, I I wonder if I will prefer in, uh, if I will prefer Bergman Island over Bergman films. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe let's get into our questions and we can talk a yes. little bit about Ingmar Bergman as a whole. Um, so our first question is what makes it a Criterion movie? But why don't you tell us like a little bit about your history with Bergman? You said you've only seen one other movie, right? Yes, I've only ever seen the um, Seven Seals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only other one that I've seen. Did Before you like that blind- better? Uh, yeah, definitely. I like that a lot better. Uh, it's, uh, it's more, uh, I don't know, just more, there's like a little <laughs> bit more weird to say whimsy about it, but there kind of is, mm-hmm. there's a little bit more of a, a humor about it. It's just more kind of a dark, it's almost kind of a, a slightly dark comedy in some ways. And uh-huh. so I don't know, I just enjoyed it much more. Yeah, so definitely a different tone because if this, there's anything comedic about this, it's extremely, extremely dark. Um, yeah. Winterlight is a very dour movie. Um, and it, but it also stars Max von Sydow, mm-hmm. who's also in Winterlight. Yeah, he plays Jonas, the the fisherman who who kills himself that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do you think makes this a Criterion movie? Just the fact that it's a Bergman. Yeah, I think that's the main reason. But also, it it is well made. Uh, it's you know well done Mm -hmm. but uh i don't know i just felt like so empty after i watched it and uh i think it's everybody has those movies where you can say it was well done it's just not for me just not my yeah yeah, yeah. you know not my taste for sure i do Um, think that it's a very personal movie it feels as well um from what I gather from people who have who have written about it who know more about mm -hmm. bergman than me because i also have only seen a couple movies of his um and I liked most of them. Um, I think I liked all of them that I've seen. But um, but yeah, but I do think that this feels very... It's a very tough movie. It's a very um, cynical movie, like we were saying, very pessimistic in a lot of ways. But I do think that it really reflects a lot about who he was as a person and, and his thoughts. So that makes it mm-hmm. kind of like very interesting to watch to anyone who's interested in him and his career. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Uh so what would you give it on the pretentiousness scale? Oh, this is way up there. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what, but maybe like around probably like a nine or something. There's something very pretentious about, you know, well, you know, we always talk about um, what is pretension. Um, I think that it's a little bit about trying to talk about very weighty topics that will get you up there. You know, the movie is very austere in many ways. So it's not like very audience friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I heard that um, he wanted to make that opening service, which is pretty long and, you know, detached of a lot of emotion, even longer. He wanted to make it like a like a, almost like an endurance endurance test for the audience to sit through that sermon that is completely unconnected to emotion and, and mm-hmm. actual, you know, love of God or whatever as a kind of like a. As a, as a, to put us in this struggle. And eventually they didn't make it as long as he wanted to, but I think that represents the kind of thing that he was trying to go for here, which is not very audience friendly and is very, uh, in its own way, pretentious. I think it pays mm-hmm. off in some ways, but um, you know that will depend on the person who's watching. Yeah. And I gave it an eight, but it's, yeah, it's, it's high. It's high for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, Definitely. it's easy to follow. So it's not pretentious in, 
that sense of like hmm. not yeah it's not inaccessible yeah. yeah yeah that's a good word for it but it is trying to talk about these big things yeah 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 well for remake i was trying to think of who is a very cynical director <laughs> who would make reveal remake this mm-hmm. and i thought of david fincher oh wow oh <laughs> that's very interesting <laughs> he's very cynical uh and kind of believes that human beings are somewhat garbage and uh and so I think that it would be interesting to see what he did with it. Uh, I think uh, I would probably cast Ethan Hawke as Thomas, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moss as Marta, oh. and Paul Bettany as Jonas. That's good casting. Um, I think this would be interesting because David Fincher, like you're saying, a very cynical director as far as we can tell, but also a director who's not very um, austere, like this movie, this movie is very, you know, bare bones in its style mm-hmm. and, and what it's showing. And, and Fincher is much more showy. So I wonder what if he would do with that, you know, if he would strip down. I would be interested in seeing a stripped down version of David Fincher or a more flashy version of this movie. Either one would be interesting to me mm-hmm. uh, in theory. So so that's a, that's an interesting pick. Um, what I would say is that. It's funny that you mentioned Ethan Hawke because he, um, the remakes thing makes me think of a movie that he's in that it's very, I think after watching this feels to me very much inspired by this, which is First Reformed. Have you seen that one? I have not. I've heard it. So that's a, it's good. yeah, that's a very interesting movie by Paul Schrader and Ethan Hawke plays a pastor who is going through a crisis of faith and who also there's like a Jonas types character in the movie there is a Marta but in a different way and an ending that um, I don't want to spoil it because it's a it's a, a very very strong ending in my opinion but it's I will say it's a little bit le- le- it's less pessimistic than this one um, and it's and it's very interesting I would be very 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 interested to um, hear what you have to say if you ever watch that movie yeah um, but um, my actual remake pitch, actually, I'm going to go ahead and steal something from you that you didn't say, but I would be maybe interested to see what Mia Hansen Love would do yeah. with this movie um, because of what we've talked about. Uh, and because partially because I was a little disappointed with her Bergman Island, I have to say, um, because I don't know, it just I guess we can go back to what you were saying about this one. It just didn't feel like it was for me. Um, I had a fine time, but I didn't really see what she was trying to do. I didn't really know what she was trying to get at with the movie. And it just didn't feel very much uh, um, like it was for me. Like it, it didn't speak to me in that way. Mm-hmm. Also, it didn't feel to me like it was like really engaging that much with Bergman's movies themselves just more like with the locale and the and the you know like memorabilia kind of element but but i didn't really understand how she felt about ingmar bergman as a director so i would be interested to see her remake actually remake one of his movies and see what her conversation would be with something like winter light which like we were saying it's a much more in tone different movie from what she usually does um and i do love things to come so i think that could be interesting Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I always am drawn to stories about writing and the process of, I, I love, I've interviewed a ton of writers mm-hmm. over at Homeworkies Podcast, 
And there's something about that sort of process of creating a story and writing Mm -hmm. that I find really interesting. And so I think that's where the movie kind of got me and they having them tell the, the both stories at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was really about storytelling and, uh, and so I, that's kind of where it got me, but, um, but yeah, I think it would be really interesting to see what she would do with an actual Bergman uh, remake. remake. It would be cur- yeah. I would be very curious. Who, you could who even would... cast the same people. I was going to say you can have Tim Roth as mm. Thomas, and then Vicky Creeps, who I love because you know I love Phantom Thread, and I think she's really good in Bergman Island, and she she would be great as Marta as well. So I would, um, I would watch that. Yeah, it's hard because she's supposed to be such a homely character, and you know obviously most of most actresses are gorgeous um and so kind of casting they mean it's it's just kind of tough like uh, when you have like a beautiful uh, Mm -hmm. actress sort of like audrey hepburn and funny face you know you're like really (laughs) yeah but Um, but that's kind of the original as well because ingrid tulin is also a very beautiful woman that like he kind of like puts like these glasses on her and and you know some bags mm-hmm. under her eyes to like you know make her more uh homely homely yeah. or whatever oh that's interesting i i haven't i haven't seen any other uh, pictures or anything of her so they, yeah they did a good job yeah. with that making yeah, her you homely yeah very good. Well, let us know if you're listening what you think of our remake pitches and what you think of this movie. Uh, we'd be very curious uh, to hear your thoughts. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this actually ended up being a really good discussion. And that's what I love about this uh, this show is yeah. that even movies that I don't love end up having good discussions. That's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, Karata, where can people find you? Um, people can find me on Twitter at Coco Hits NY. And also, by the time you're listening to this, we'll be on the eve of the release of the second season of my web series, Wormholes. Um, the whole first season is available to watch on YouTube, and the second season starts at the end of March, and there'll be new episodes every Wednesday. Um, you can find that if you go to YouTube and search Wormholes the series. It's a very fun show, it's a sci fi comedy about friends with a wormhole in their apartment closet and kind of intergalactic adventures will happen. Um, We're very proud of the season. Uh, It's bigger, maybe even better than the first one. So I would love for you guys to check it out. Mm, That's awesome. Congratulations. And I just realized that I forgot for you to say what your pick is for next time. Yeah, that's true. But why don't you? But why don't we save that for the end? Why don't you tell people where to find you, and then we'll close by revealing what comes next. Okay. Yeah. Make sure you're following us at Criterion Pod on Twitter, and uh, you can find me at Rachel's Reviews. All of our social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on Rotten Tomatoes. So check that out. And also mm-hmm. make sure you're following me at Hallmarkies Podcast. We have a lot of fun over there. Fantastic. And Hallmarkies Podcast is the year-round venture. Don't think that just because Christmas <laughs> season is over, there's no more Hallmarkies Podcast, because there is. And yeah. if you're interested in that, you should be listening. It's true. And we just had our big Hallmarkies Podcast Awards show uh, this week, uh, where we had tons of stars and super fun. I'm really proud of it. So Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so drumroll, please, for the next episode, it's going to be... Uh, the Age of Innocence by mm. Mr. Martin Scorsese. 
another gangster movie from him. Uh, he just can't stop making them. So we're going to be uh, talking about, no, I'm just kidding. It's a Edith Wharton adaptation, a period piece, which you know Rachel loves and I love as well. Daniel Day-Lewis, Michelle Pfeiffer, two of my absolute favorites. Winona Ryder is in there as well. Um, so that should be a very good uh, conversation as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. That'll be fun. So yeah, let us know again what you think of this movie and uh, we'll be excited to talk about uh, Age of Innocence. And uh, thanks so much, everybody. We'll talk to you all next uh, in the next episode. Bye, everyone. <laughs>